0: Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. In this edition, we hear from speakers at an education day coordinated by the Victorian Paediatric Rehabilitation Service. We partnered with VPRS to record and share selected sessions. We'll hear this discussion in four parts. In parts one, two, and three, outpatient development assessment programs, participation in rehabilitation, and upper limb orthoses. We'll hear now about early detection and intervention, presented by Associate Professor Alicia Spittle of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne, and Sue Greaves, the acting manager of occupational therapy at the Royal Children's Hospital. Alicia starts with new research in the area of early detection. So
1: at the moment, as Adam mentioned, um, In the past, I should say, the average age of diagnosis has been between 12 and 24 months. But things are changing. Babies are getting diagnosed much earlier. And what we want to be doing is using the best available evidence so that we can actually... um, assess children early and then hopefully that they can actually access timely interventions and one of the things that we're finding challenging at the moment is actually accessing those timely interventions and working out what is the best early intervention for children at high risk or with cerebral palsy. So we want high quality and timely evaluations, we want rapid and accurate early detection and we want these children receiving the best available evidence. So, I think it was two years ago now, almost three years ago, it feels like. um, A whole group of us met in Vienna, which was a fantastic um, summit, and we had neurologists, people with cerebral palsy, parents, service providers, a number of different um, people who got together to talk about these early detection guidelines. We followed the World Health Organisation recommendations for creating these type of guidelines and we used um, the grade model to rate the evidence and the important thing to keep in mind as i'm going through the evidence this morning is that when we're looking uh, at strong evidence it'll be highlighted in the green and this means that there's um, high quality evidence supporting these types of recommendations the blue or the yellow in parts of the slide is conditional evidence
0: alicia does refer to the slides here and there but overall we still get the picture
1: that something is harmful and obviously we want to be it's Um, important that we're we're doing things that are beneficial for patients and not harmful. So this is um, quite a busy slide and hard for you to read but it just shows you in the publication there's a few tables that go through each of these recommendations that I'm going to tell you about now and talks about what the recommendation is and the strength of the evidence. So for example, the first recommendation, which I'll again go over in a moment, is that the clinical diagnosis of CP can and should be made as early as possible. So that the infant can receive diagnostic-specific early intervention and surveillance to optimise neuroplasticity and prevent complications. And that parents, and this is really important, that parents can then also get psychological and financial support where available. And there's strong to moderate evidence for this. So moving over to... um, all the different recommendations now. Our first recommendation, number one recommendation based upon strong evidence is that the clinical diagnosis of cerebral palsy can and should be made as early as possible. This is key for early intervention to occur. So if, you don't, um, if we keep saying, we'll just wait and see, we don't refer to early intervention, these kids aren't gonna receive intervention. And also really, really important as I mentioned is the parental support. When the diagnosis of cerebral palsy cannot be made with high certainty, you can give the baby a label of high risk of cerebral palsy. So you don't necessarily have to give the full diagnosis of cerebral palsy. You can say that the baby is at high risk of cerebral palsy. And NDIS, I believe, uh, will accept this as a um, criteria for referral. And again, really important, if you are making if you're not sure that you can make the call that they have cerebral palsy, they're at high risk, that you keep monitoring that baby so that you can see how their development is progressing and then give them the diagnosis when it's appropriate. When we're looking at those babies who are most at risk, and as many of you will know, there's not just one test, unfortunately, that we can do to diagnose cerebral palsy, it's looking at a clinical picture. So when we're looking at our babies who might be at high risk of cerebral palsy, it's really good to come back and look at who makes up our population of kids with cerebral palsy? And in fact, 45% of babies who have cerebral palsy are born healthy at term. So there are a lot of babies that we're going to miss. And if we have a term, a baby born healthy at term, their risk of CP is about 0.1%. So we obviously can't monitor every single baby with some of these, with these um, assessments that I'm talking about. For babies who are born um, healthy at term, 99% of them won't have CP, which is good for them. Um, For those who do have CP though, they tend to be more severe, and you can see all different subtypes. So often these babies who are born at term and healthy, they're often not gonna get diagnosed till later because there's no um, clinical indicator that might make us think, oh, this child has CP. Whereas for a baby born preterm, These parents are often counselled before the baby is even born um, that their baby on specific risk for cerebral palsy. So it's not necessarily something new for these parents to be hearing cerebral palsy. What we're actually finding is a lot of parents (coughs) of um, babies who are born preterm are coming to clinic and they're asking us, do we think if their baby has cerebral palsy? So it's, it's a word that they've heard before. If we look at the risk factors, again... 90% of children who are born preterm won't have CP, so it's not something that we're going to see in all of our kids born preterm, and the degree of prematurity will influence whether these children have CP or not. So all um, types are common for uh, children who are born preterm, but mild CP is more common and diplegia is more common. So again, very preterm children should, given that there's a higher risk of having um, cerebral palsy, they should have closer surveillance. And often diagnosed earlier than those children who are born at term. And then there's those babies who have neonatal encephalopathy, who account for about twenty percent of children who have cerebral palsy. And these are babies who have an event, or there's something at birth um, that causes this brain injury. And we can; these babies are often picked up much earlier. Um, again, it depends on the level of HIE. Those children, particularly with sign at grade three. Um, 50% of them, unfortunately, will pass away and 50% will have cerebral palsy and, again, it tends to be more severe and dyskinesia is really common. So <clears throat> this brings us on to our second recommendation and that is that all babies who are born preterm with um, neonatal encephalopathy or birth defects do need more closer follow-up with early standardized assessments which can help us detect risk for CP. So in terms of what assessments we should be using before five months of age, we need to be using a combination of assessments. So as I said, unfortunately, there's not one test that we can do to say, yep, your child has cerebral palsy or not. We need to be looking at the whole clinical picture. So combination of standardized motor assessments, neuroimaging where possible, and of course, history taking. So there's more and more people, um, which is fantastic, in Victoria who are trained in the general movements assessment. And hopefully, if you're not trained yourself, you can get a colleague to um, help with assessing a baby. One of the key things with the general movements assessment, though, is it's a very narrow time period where we can assess these babies. So you can use it from birth up until around three to four months of age. But once we get beyond five months of age, we need to be looking at other assessments. So when we can, a combination of general movements and brain MRI is going to give us our best prediction for cerebral palsy. If we don't have GMs or MRI, we can still um, do early detection and this should be carried out. And there's other assessment tools which we'll talk about later this morning, including the the HINE, the H-I-N-E, which is a Hammersmith Infant Neurological Examination, and it's a really easy tool that we can be using in our clinical practice. Uh, And, of course, the AIMS as well has been shown to be predictive of cerebral palsy, um, but it doesn't tell us so much about severity of cerebral palsy. So um, early detection can and should be and still occur ASAP, but different um, diagnostic tools are required for infants who are older than five months. So there's a few different things that we can look out for. If a baby is at nine months, we need to be thinking if they can't uh, sit independently, take weight through their feet or have hand asymmetry, that they might need further investigation as to what's going on. So it doesn't mean they've got CP. It means we need to be looking in more depth at what's going on. And again, if we look at older age groups... The HINE, uh, plus neuroimaging and other motor assessments help us um, detect cerebral palsy. But you can see here that this is a conditional recommendation. There's not as much evidence after five months. Uh, so there's, if when an MRI is not available or safe or affordable, the HINE has good evidence, the AIMS and the MAI have uh, moderate evidence. Now really importantly families are going to want to know about severity of CP and um, prognosis of motor severity um, should be made cautiously under two years of age and involve standardised assessment tools to help us with this but we need to be aware it can be very challenging um, to to look at severity under two years of age. But it's important to keep in mind population um, data with cerebral palsy and we know that approximately two-thirds of children with cerebral palsy can walk. So if you're having a conversation with parents with a baby who you're not sure what the severity necessarily is going to be like, you can let them know, well, in fact, the majority of kids with CP can walk. Whereas what we find with most parents when we're talking with um, them for the first time about cerebral palsy, they're thinking that their child's going to be in a wheelchair. So it's really good to let them know that the scope or um, this umbrella that we see of motor function in children with CP. And it's that J curve. So we see more children who can ambulate, then it decreases around GMFCS 3 and 4, and then a little bit of an increase with um, 15% of children having GMFCS 5. MRI can also help us with severity, and that's where our neurology colleagues come in really handy. Those children, and so MRI is recommended for children who are thought to have cerebral palsy to help us refine prognosis. And so if a child has um, bilateral hemorrhages, bilateral cystic PVL, uh, brain maldevelopment or basal ganglia injuries, they're more likely to be non CP, whereas children who have unilateral lesions, more likely to be a hemi, more likely to walk. So one of the nice things about the HINE is it actually um, helps you a bit more in prognosis of severity of CP as well. So if a child has uh, a HINE score less than 50, they're more likely to be bilateral between three and 12 months. Um, And if they have a score less than 40 between three to six months, they're more likely to have GMFCS grade three to five. So this helps us obviously with counselling parents, but also determining where we might head our intervention. So recommendation nine is the early detection of motor subtype and topography can be difficult, but wherever possible, it's really important because as we're going to talk about in a moment, the type of therapy will depend on the um, presentation of the child. So if they're a hemi, you can look at um, constraint. If they've got um, GMFCS5, you're going to be having to start hip surveillance much earlier. It's really important to look at severity. Uh, And so just a few more recommendations before we move on to interventions, but clinical diagnosis should always be referred, um, followed by referral to CP specific intervention. And parent concern is a valid reason for further investigations to occur. And when we are looking at CP, as we know, it's not just a motor um, problem, there can be lots of comorbidities. So it's really important to look for associated impairments such as visual impairments, um, seizures, and other functional impairments. And then most importantly, it's really important that we support parents. Not surprisingly, parents experience grief and loss at the time of diagnosis of high risk of notification. And therefore, communication with the family should actually be a series of well-planned, and compassionate conversations. So not just one meeting with the family, we think your child's got CP, we'll refer you to early intervention, and that's it. We need to actually have a follow-up appointment so that they can get over that initial shock, come back and ask you questions. They can bring their partner if they weren't there another time that you're keeping that door open to talk to the family. So it's really important with that diagnosis or discussion of a diagnosis, that's obviously face to face. Both parents and caregivers are present. It needs to be private and it needs to be honest, jargon free, um, empathic, tailored to uh, where the family is at. Written information can be very useful. Obviously, like we all do, identify the strengths of the child, ask the family to ask questions and discuss their feelings and hopefully help normalise those feelings. If you can, providing parent-to-parent support is fantastic and obviously one of the big things that we do is arrange early intervention. So there, a quick summary of the clinical guidelines and we can talk about um, them later on the panel, but I encourage you to have a look at the paper and keep these things in mind when we're looking at early diagnosis.
0: Alicia and her colleagues conducted a systematic review recently of the effectiveness of motor interventions for infants with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. She takes us through the findings of that research. So as you can understand, there's probably not
1: heaps of studies out there because in the past, diagnosis was made quite late, whereas we're seeing (laughs) diagnoses made earlier and more studies looking at earlier intervention. Because obviously for intervention to start early, you have to have a diagnosis early. So we did... We searched the the standard um, databases, and we looked for children who had a diagnosis or at high risk of cerebral palsy due to imaging or GMs assessments. And what we found were thirty-four studies, and most of them—only ten of them—were RCTs, and the majority of them focused on NDT. And Sue will talk about this more in a moment. But the two—there was only two interventions that actually had a significant effect on motor outcome. And these were interventions that involved child-initiated movement, so getting the child to do the movement rather than therapists therapist doing it for them, involved environment modification and enrichment and task-specific training. So these are the, really the key things that we need to be looking at with our early intervention. And unfortunately, when we look at what this paper adds to the literature, we um, did an updated review of motor interventions, but unfortunately the evidence for early intervention is actually quite weak. But the promising interventions, as I said, need to be... Child initiated movement, task-specific and involve environmental uh, modification. Interestingly, around the same time on the other side of the world in Europe, uh, Mina Hadder's Elgas did a similar review looking at the effect of early intervention at infants at very high risk of cerebral palsy. And it concluded similar findings. So evidence of effective early intervention during the first year um, postnatally is quite weak, um, but it suggests that dosage is really critical, and the interventions need to be multifaceted. So not just physio, not just OT, we need to be looking at the parent as well. And so this brings us on um, to this new study that some of you, or many of you in the audience may have heard about called GAME. And Kathy Morgan has led this trial, which she did a pilot trial as part of her PhD called Goals. and so GAME stands for Goals, Activity, Motor and Enrichment. We were really lucky um, at the end of last year to receive a large NHMRC grant to look at a multi-centre trial of this intervention because one of the criticisms of the research to date is there's been very small sample sizes. And as you know, whilst there's many children with CP, we actually need to combine forces to get very large sample sizes of children who are diagnosed early. So this study is looking at harnessing neuroplasticity to improve motor performance in infants with CP, a pragmatic Um, randomized control trial it involves New South Wales Queensland and Victoria and the aim is to look at the effectiveness of game versus standard care and as you know standard care can be anything or a wide variety in Australia but we're going to be documenting it very carefully Um, so standard care versus game on both motor and cognitive skills at two years So if any of you have children who you think would be eligible for GAME, would love to hear from you. In terms of eligibility screening, we'll look at whether they meet criteria, which I'll go through in a moment, or not meet criteria. Then they'll have their baseline assessments, which I'll talk to you about in a moment. We're randomising 300 infants, uh, so 150 to intervention, 150 to standard care. We'll have an interim outcome measure at one year, and that's... um, Intervention will go for two years and then we'll have their primary outcome measure at two years. And when they um, finish the study, they'll still be referred for other early intervention. So, in terms of eligibility criteria, they either have to have a diagnosis of CP prior to six months of age, because we're wanting to start really early. If they're less than 17, or if they're less than 17 weeks of age, they have to have. So MRI indicative or cranial ultrasound indicative of CP plus absent fidgety movements on their general movements assessment. And then if they have these criteria, we'll assess them with the HINE and if they've got a score less than 57, they'll be eligible. If they have no imaging available, we would do a HINE in combination with the GMs if they're less than 17 weeks. um, And then just make sure that there's nothing else that might indicate it's another um, developmental disorder, not CP. If they're older than 17 weeks, we can't do the GMs. So again, if we have imaging, it's a lot more helpful, plus a hind score. Um, and then if their score is above um, 57, we we'd be wanting to look to see if they've got any clinical um, signs or functional asymmetry will be, both intervention groups will be given an app to document dosage of therapy because we know dosage is really, really important. And as we said, standard care is so variable. So we want to keep um, a really close eye on what people in both groups are doing. And then our primary outcome measure is the Peabody to assess motor function at two years. Uh, and our <laughs> secondary outcome measures, you can see listed here, there's quite a number of different measures. So I'm more than happy to talk to um, any of you in more detail. If you think you've got a child who would be eligible for game, and we can talk about it later on, just feel free to give me an email and we can have a chat about it. But um, please consider referring these babies. It won't affect, um, that they can still have, either be standard care or referred to game, so you can still go about your normal referral to early intervention. But we really, it's a really unique opportunity for us to show that intensive early intervention is effective.
0: Now let's hear from Sue Greaves, who focuses her research around early interventions for congenital hemiplegia. She refers to the trial simply as REACH.
2: So as Lisa's just been outlining, we now have tools that allow us to identify babies at risk of or with cerebral palsy at this very early age. And we can use assessment tools such as GMs or MRI that to, to help us detect these infants at these, at these young um, ages. But what happens next? So, you know, what happens when we do diagnose? What interventions are we going to provide to them? And and what is the efficacy of these interventions? And as I said, currently, you know, in Australia we don't, and what we've been hearing is we don't have very many answers, but, you know, these two trials, I think we're really aiming to help answer these questions. So there's the REACH game trial that you've just been hearing about, and I'm going to be talking to you about REACH. So, like all good studies, REACH is an acronym, and it stands for Rehabilitation Early for Congenital Hemiplegia. So, what we're doing in REACH is we're going to be comparing two types of upper limb interventions for children with unilateral CP. So, it's only with children with unilateral CP. So, the active ingredients that we're actually comparing is a modified constraint-induced movement therapy program compared to bimanual therapy. So, um, In both arms of the trial, they're getting active intervention.
0: That's baby constraint induced movement therapy.
2: What kind of kids are eligible for the REACH study? So, infants are eligible if they're less than, similar to the game study, if they're less than six months of age, English is spoken in the family, and if they have the following inclusion criteria. So, they need to have an asymmetric brain lesion. So, um, unlike game, we're just Looking at children with um, at risk of unilateral CP or with CP, so they might have had a stroke or an IVH where the damage is more on one side. Similar to game, we're looking um, to uh, to recruit them early. So if they have um, had an abs- um a general movements assessment, we're looking for absent general movements assessment at 12 to 18 weeks. Or we do also. Um, look at the hind if they're older than that, so because again we recruit them up to six months. So if they've if they've got an abnormal hind score as well or they can also present with an asymmetry um, of upper limb presentation. And we're using this very exciting new tool that's been developed by the Swedish OTs called the HI, or the Hand Assessment of Infants. And so the HI will also help us detect whether there's an asymmetry of upper limb movements, and that is another eligibility criteria because they actually, um, you know, Sometimes it's, it's very difficult to say, if we just had an abnormal MRI but no general movements, we know that abnormal ge- not all abnormal MRIs go on to have pathology. So it's really important that we also associate it with a, a clinical tool like the high to see do they actually have asymmetry of movement. Exclusion criteria includes epilepsy, so it's, that's uncontrolled by medication. Retinopathy or prematurity greater than grade 2 or cortical blindness and um, VP shunts are also um, excluded. So um, at 12 months, we do confirm a diagnosis of CP. Similar to GAME, we really need to re- be recruiting from a number of states to try and get the number of, of children that we require. So we're looking to get 150 infants in this trial, so they're two quite, gonna be two quite big trials. And so we're recruiting from Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and as well as Western Australia. So um, yeah, we're tr- it's again, it's great that we can be recruiting from all these different states to get the number. Um, we're going to be using a number of instruments to classify the babies, both at baseline, 12 months and 24 months, things like um, you know, we're going to look at the brain structure, um, the Fiori scale, using the Fiori scale, et cetera. We're going to be looking at neurological and spontaneous movements with GMs and HINE, upper limb symmetry with the high, etc., etc. And similar to gain, we've got a number of outcomes that we're going to be looking at as well. So the the primary outcomes for our trial are the high and also the mini which or the mini assisting hand assessment, and there are a number of different um, secondary outcome measures, and including lots of um, parent um, measures as well, such as the Prime G, and the parent emotion scales, and and we're also looking at Bailey as well at at two. 12 months and two years as well. In terms of the intervention, um, as I said, there's two types of intervention. There's uh, baby SIMT or baby bimanual therapy in dosage. So where the dosage varies depending on the age of the child. So when they're between three and six months of age, there's 20 minutes per day and you don't have to do it all in the one and I'm sure every mother out there knows, 20 minutes if a young baby is really extremely difficult to do. So you can actually spread it over the day. You might do two, two, 10-minute sessions, um, and we we ask them to do it on five days a week. Between six and nine months of age, they increase that to 30 minutes. Again, doesn't have to be all in the one hit. Um, they can split it, and between 9 and 12 months, it's increased to 40 minutes. So the total dose of the training um, depends a little bit on when, when they get recruited into the study. But So it's between 70 to 9 hours, depending on the study entry. Um, and... Um, well, similar to gain, you know, children are eligible for other services while they are participating in the study. But I guess what we say is that um, we have a, a discussion with us, with any participating early intervention services, to discuss that the child is on the study and what we're doing with them on, and the type of intervention they're receiving. So, one of the really important things that we think about providing upper limb intervention is that you really target it at the just right challenge. And I'm sure all you interventionists out there know that, that can be really, really tricky. So we're going to be using the high to help us decide that, and we're going to be trying to aim it at three different levels. So the first kind of level, or the lowest level, is you know the younger infant, or is not only the younger infant, but maybe the more involved infant. Well, they're not, where they're mostly just reaching, or um, for toys they're not really grasping. So it's a it's a kind of reaching, early reaching, grasping kind of level. The second level is when they can grasp, but their grasping skills are not very good. Whereas the third level is when they can grasp and we really want to refine their grasping and their manipulation. So, um, yeah, uh, we have these three different levels. And what we've done is we've operationalized these interventions into these two different manuals. So, a baby BIM manual, baby bimanual intervention, and a baby constraint manual. And these two manuals outline everything that the therapist needs to know to provide these interventions, and including all the parent interaction stuff as well as what actual Therapy you're going to be providing and how you're providing it. And I should say that there's also embedded in this study is a fidelity studies where we're looking really, really closely at the fidelity of intervention so that we really know that we are actually providing bimanual intervention and what does bimanual intervention involve or we really are providing constraint and what are the key ingredients for constraint. And I think that's really, really important because one of the criticisms you'll hear later when I talk later is about um, studies and really poor description of what an intervention is. I think it's really important that we get this very clear.
0: Thank you for listening to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. To find out more about our CRE, head to our website at crecp.org.au. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss our next episode. Brixie Studio.